Welcome to Story Smack. This is episode 57 of Story Smack, the podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler. I'm an audiobook narrator and a founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestseller, and I'm sitting on Frog One. Come on. Come on, Irv. Today we're talking about the 1972 movie, The French Connection. Uh, It was a five-time Academy Award winner. And it was directed by William Friedkin, who went on to direct The Exorcist. So two very different movies, but both have uh, quite a bit of blood and other bodily fluids. And I think we should talk about that a little bit later. Uh, They are very different purposefully. Not just their like their oh, yeah? script and subject matter, but but Friedkin's approach to it too, okay. which I found okay. is interesting. Okay. We are drinking every Saturday. We drink, or every time we do a story smack, we drink a cocktail from Shaker and Spoon. This is not an advertisement. We just uh, were they gifted. can pay us if they want to though. We'll yes, be, we'll be uh, happy. we were gifted we'll this delightful happy. subscription. Uh, Shaker and Spoon, you get a box of stuff, and then you buy a bottle of alcohol. Um, so that way they don't have to ship you the alcohol and worry about breakage or whatever. And it, this is called the Nippon Cooler. This is made with Japanese whiskey. You don't get a lot of mixed drinks. With whiskey. This one's lovely, actually. It's very light and fruity, but you can still taste the smoke of the uh, the whiskey. So, cheers to all of you if you've uh, if you're having a cheers. beverage, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, imaginary, whatever. We are happy to be spending a little bit of time with you on this Saturday. Talk about this crazy movie. First of all. Gene Hackman, done. End of story. That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> this movie has Gene Hackman, in case you did not know. Um, in, and in case you didn't know, he's a huge fan of I'm Gene a big, Hackman. Big, 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 big fan. Uh, it taught gritty performance. This is the one that really put him on the map. Although, oh God, he was in, um, what was the one before this? He was in a big one before this. Um, before this? Before know. the French Connection came out. He was on... Uh, he was in TV for a dozen years, so I'm not sure. There's probably big, one. He had a big movie. I'll look I, it up. I, I, I'm doing a pretty bad job. We'll do that. But you know what? He was a detective. He's an NYPD detective in this movie. You know what he is? Wild card! Uh-oh. They I had, want your gun and your badge. They took away his gun and his badge, and they took him I, off the case. Come on, Irv! Come on! Are, yep. Is the one you're talking about uh, Bonnie and Clyde? Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. That's, that's the one, Bonnie and Clyde. But this was the movie that won uh, Gene Hackman the Academy Award for Best Actor. His which first we're gonna talk Academy to. Award. His yeah. first Academy Award. We're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up. Um, and it really put him on the map, obviously. And, hey, Go. Uh, Popeye Egan uh, is the name of Gene Hackman's character. Uh, Popeye Doyle, I mean. Um, what was his first name? Something. Uh, uh, something. Buddy Egan. We're going to get to him in a anyway, second. Anyway, uh, uh, let's see. Here. Uh, Popeye Egan, uh, Eddie Egan, is the Eddie Egan. actual um, New York City narcotics police detective that Popeye Doyle is based on. And uh, so this is a true story. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. Um, I will say that Popeye Egan, Eddie Egan, the actual uh, detective, was in The French Connection. And he wasn't even a big part. He played uh, Walt Simonson. Uh, it's the, so cool, though, uh, that Popeye the, guy, Doyle's the guy this is based on, cop, put him in the movie, uh-huh. give him a role. It was a big role, too. Oh, and, and he went he on. Popeye Egan went on to have a bunch of a career, a Hollywood career, too. Okay. Um, okay. After he retired from the New York City police force. After he retired from the New York City. You know why? Because he was also a wild card. Uh, yeah, there's a ton, actually, if you want to talk a little bit about it. I have a ton of info. Um, We're going to get to that. About oh. the Fr- the real French connection? No, nope, about, about Egan. Egan. Go for it. Um, yeah, talk about him. So he was born and raised in New York City. I'll skip most of the uh, the non movie making stuff, but this is a um, a book, a movie, a screenplay based on a non fiction book written in 19- published in 1969 by an author named Robin Moore, who um, wrote about the actual police um, 
case that The French Connection is about. And then that became a screenplay. And then William Friedkin bought the screenplay and directed the screenplay. So um, he actually... Uh, the, some of the things that are in the movie are quite factual. He finds he sort of s- sort of susses out, sniffs out this problem, and he had a very unconventional approach to policing. Um, there are just a couple of my favorite stories. He um, uh, <laughs> he's been 15 years with the New York City Police Department. He became um, quite famous among his colleagues and his collars for, uh, that's my dog, um, for unconventional policing. He dressed up as a hot dog vendor, as a deaf mute beggar, as a priest, um, as a theatrical agent and a theatrical actor, all to um, be in a position where he could uh, make arrests and um my very favorite one, let me find the one, he, um, he posed as Santa Claus one Christmas season, and he got in a big Santa suit, and he had a brass, um, a brass bell, and he had a little um, donation thing, and he just would walk down the streets in the Bronx and, like, ring the bell, and every time he rang the bell twice, one of his colleagues would come out from hidden somewhere and, and uh, arrest Drugs, drug pushers who he had watched that didn't they didn't think that he was a big problem because he was uh, Santa Claus and he was collecting alms or whatever, but he was actually undercover. And so he would just keep ringing the bell. And if he rang it double in this hand, there was a drug bust going on right there. And if he rang it double in this hand, there was a drug bust or a drug deal going on over there. And they made the bust. And that year they made 37 collars in the Christmas season, which was quite a whole lot. All right. Sorry about that, you guys. People at the door. Barking dogs. <laughs> I'm out of breath. Whew. Whew. Okay. Uh, so then after the French Connection came out in 1972, uh, Egan asked to be retired from the police force. And instead, Internal Affairs brought up a um, uh, accused him of withholding drugs from some of his busts and failing to appear in court when he was re- uh, scheduled to testify. And he was dismissed. He was fired without recompense what? and without a pension from the New York City Police Department. And uh, he definitely had, just like Popeye Doyle does in the movie, he had a kind of a brusque, brash uh, personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just he just left and then sued the department. And the case was totally dismissed. It was, it was not true. And then he retired to Florida, where he died in 1995 of colon cancer. Okay, that's... Uh, that's a Egan, but I was talking, yeah. Is this of. after his uh, movie career then? Yeah. Okay, after his movie career. Mm-hmm. So you know what they did? They literally took his gun and his badge. That's <laughs> how much. Take his gun that is how badge. much of a wild card he was. So um, we have a lot to unpack here. We're kind of off because I thought that was me. But uh, this movie won Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm. And then you talk about this too. The yeah. King has. The, um, a huge Gene Hackman fan. He has been nominated for five Academy Awards. He's won two. He was nominated in Bonnie and Clyde which for Best Supporting Actor. And then in 1971, he was also nominated. Bonnie and Clyde was 68. In 71, it was I Never Sang for My Father, which I have not seen. Mm. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Did not win. 72, French Connection. French Connection made in 71, but it was for the 72 Academy Awards. He won Best Actor. He was nominated for Best Actor in 1989's Mississippi Burning, and then he won his second, mm. and of course, the amazing Unforgiven 1993 
won for Best Supporting Actor. One of my favorite movies. It's kind of crazy to imagine that that huge, long-storied career, these powerful, powerful movies that lots and lots of people know, mm-hmm. two Oscar wins. It's it a very, like it's a very, more. it's a very competitive field. I oh, understand. Course, yeah, absolutely. It just seems crazy. It seems like it should be better than that. Well, now there's the uh, the the fun thing. Well, I guess it's not fun at all. But the fun thing going on with the Tony Awards. I don't know. And that there are so few productions that actually ran long enough to be considered oh. for the Tony Award because of the COVIDs. And uh, so now there, there's one guy, if I have this correct, there's one guy who is nominated for the best male lead in a musical. Uh, and he is the only guy in the category. And if I'm going to bet on him, he, well, he, he still has to get 60% of the vote. <laughs> so. He's the only guy nominated. And if he doesn't win, that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard to live down. But, you know, back in 72, um, the French Connection for its time was a great movie. We'll talk a little bit about why it might not be as productive today. It might not be quite the same um, reception today for Mm -hmm. a handful of reasons. But back in the day, it was very well received. Um, Not not every critic liked it or anything, but uh, it also had a huge amount of competition for the Oscars that year and for all the critics' love that year. Mm -hmm. It was up against Fiddler in the Roof as an Oscar nomination, Clockwork Orange, The Last uh, Picture Show by Peter Bogdanovich. There were tons and tons and tons. So, you know, the, the this was the start of a class. I don't know if Howard's in the audience, but I bet he is. Um, this was the start of a class that they started to call New Hollywood or um, the Decade of Influence in the United States. There was something called the Decade of Influence in Europe, especially in France in the 60s for movie making. And then in the 70s, the New Hollywood era came here and you start to see movies like this sort of real gritty. The characters are the dri- the stunt drivers, the the huge driving scene you see under the elevated train in New, in New York with Gene Hackman behind the wheel. Gene Hackman was behind the wheel. Yeah. Uh, so really? it was. Wow. Yeah. It was a wild. Uh, I mean, it was a scripted fight just like anything else. Sure. But he was still sure. the driver. And I find uh, these very these things very, very interesting. And I don't think that they would happen. Oh, today no, in no, Hollywood. No, no, you're not going to have a guy who's nominated for best supporting actor driving a car and smashing <laughs> into shit. That's not yeah, how no, he was work. best actor. Uh, he was, he was, no, but the movie before. Oh, right, right, right. In, yes, yes, in, yes. But, you know, that was actually the same thing. The mm-hmm. director class that year was oh, also outstanding. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's huge. It's Let's see. We have uh, Stanley Kubrick for A Clockwork Orange, Norman Jewison for Fiddler on the Roof, also the most on-the-nose name of any director for any movie ever, uh, Peter Bogdanovich for The Last Picture So, John Schlesinger for Sunday Bloody Sunday, and then, of course, this movie with Mr. Friedkin, who then went on to do The Exorcist after this. Very different, very different Yeah, movies. and I had mentioned that earlier, that mm-hmm. um, William Fried, Friedman, Friedkin sorry, made, made specific choices. He, this one is a very superficial, purposefully superficial. So when I say superficial, I'm not actually uh, dogging it. Oops. I that was saying, the directorial intent. That was the directorial intent was to be sort of surface level with this. This is there. There are lots of um, police procedural tropes in this movie. Mm-hmm. Lots of like rowdy cops roughing up bad guys. <laughs> lots yeah. of like you know taking on a different role if you're going to be the good cop or the bad cop or the whatever. Um, and, but also there's very 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 precious little internal dialogue or monologue for any of these characters we never find out the spoiler i should have said this earlier spoiler alert obviously it's a story smack um but uh at the end of the movie 
uh, Popeye Doyle kills one of his own by accident. It's a Mm -hmm. total accident, but he does it. And I bet he spends potentially one second of screen time like, ugh. And that's it. He kills a friend of his and he doesn't do any internal understanding of that. The um, like the low level mules. Uh, it's a it's a drug running story. And there, there's a couple that are kind of like the peons. It's Sal and Angie, Sal and you know, Angie. Sal and Angie at the candy shop. Yeah. And uh, Sal and, and Angie, you you. Very often, like you see them interacting with each other because they run a candy shop um, diner thing, but you see through the window of the store, so you can't even hear what they're saying. They have no internal life. And I find that very interesting when you think about the next thing that William Friedkin made was The Exorcist, which Mm. was all about what's inside. And I find those interesting, especially because I found watching, and I've seen The French Connection before, but I found it difficult to watch today, having been in lockdown for eight months. Okay. And uh, I don't know, maybe my executive function needs shorter, more fulfilling things because it's hard to just sit in the same living room for seven months. Uh, this movie reminded me that we no longer have entertainment that is maybe three storylines that take two and a half hours to tell. Right, right. We watch YouTube for four minutes, get bored, and switch to something else. We scroll through Facebook nonstop, and those things, I think, uh, would make it difficult for this movie to get made today. So it's not really, it's not that much of a deep dive into the, you know, the internal grittiness of the police police life and cop life. It's it's very super superficial, but so much of this movie is now so iconic. Of course, the crazy chasing, which uh, has been celebrated for many years. And I had heard about the chasing before I actually watched the movie a few years ago and uh, was like, OK, whatever to chasing. But when you watch it, it's it's a it's a bit of a crazy. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy chasing with people making really bad decisions. You know, like oh, yeah. the guy with the, the guy with a gun at the front of the train. He's like, get back. And the other guy's like, no, you got no way out of here. And he doesn't get back. And then he gets shot. And like, that's just that's just a, it's a rough way to go. There's a ton of those, too, because also the guy doing the shooting smart enough to know he's a grown ass man. He knows he's not getting off that train. But Unless he jumps off the L, and yet he's still willing to shoot his way out. And the scenery was very stark. And uh, we got to there's a lot of scenery chewing of while Frog One and the other bad guy are um, enjoying the high life of New York. They're eating, they're drinking, they're having three hour dinners, etc. And then there's Gene Hackman free and Roy Scheider freezing their day nuts off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was shot in winter, right? Yeah, it was shot in winter on purpose because that's sort of the, the right light in New York City that they wanted and that kind of thing. And it's also you you see them when you see them shivering in the cold on a stakeout, they're shivering in the cold on a stakeout because it's 30 degrees in New York City. And I think you uh, sort of take that for granted a lot because now we can CGI all that stuff. But yeah. they're, if you see their uh, their breath because they're standing on a street corner freezing, mm-hmm. they're standing on a street corner freezing. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned, uh, apparently, uh, Gene Hackman is, is an attractive human being. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, uh, the rest of the cast. And no, I'm not saying Roy Scheider's ugly. I'm not no, saying this. and it's not so much the whole cast, but the whole vibe here. Thanks for reminding me. We talked When we were watching it, we were talking about this. There are things about this movie, lots of things, that probably don't happen today. I mentioned the scene cutting, but also a handful of the lead characters or important characters or uh, substantial characters are... Not Hollywood pretty in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there's a guy who tests the purity of the heroin that's coming into town. And his the whole his whole scene is right up in his face. Literally right up in his face. Yeah. He has terrible front teeth. He has 
a scrawny little mustache. Mm-hmm. He has a terrible haircut nobody fixed, and I'm mm-hmm. sure nobody decided on that haircut for him. And that's okay, because he was a drug runner, you know? And right. so we don't right. have that anymore. Like, if we made the French connection today, that might be Chance Crawford, mm-hmm. you know, roughed up and dirtied up, or whatever. Sure. But he'd still have perfect veneered teeth, he'd still have gorgeous contact lenses, he'd have all that stuff. And you know? uh, Nelson in the chat brought up a good point, that not just the cast, but New York City was ugly as hell. Oh yeah, back then, this is too. the This same. is the pre-scrubbed New York City when Times Square was just a, yeah. a nasty, nasty place. And a goodly amount of this uh, movie takes place in the Bronx, which is the, like the age of Fort Apache. Uh, you know, and Fort Apache, the Bronx, is a movie, but it was also the Bronx at the time. It was pretty rough and tumble. Rough That's and, a really good point. Tumble. What we're going to do now, guys, is we're going to go over here and we're going to talk about the cast. We're going to talk a little bit, not not too much of a deep dive, because uh, outside of a couple of guys in this, um, a lot of people who are not career actors, celebrated actors, etc. But of course, Mr. Gene Hackman. Uh, French Connection, Royal Tannenbaums, The Poseidon Adventure. If you haven't seen The Poseidon Adventure, do yourself a favor. The original. Poseidon the original. Adventure. Do yourself. You don't need to watch Fergie. That's okay. The original Poseidon Adventure. Gene Hackman. Cue that bad. Cue that bad boy up and watch it. He is lights out. And then a movie that uh, Gene Hackman is not celebrated for, but is very influential in my work in the Crypt series, is Crimson Tide with the. Another amazing actor, Mr. Mm. Denzel Washington. Yep. Just some of the scenes between those two guys in that movie are, wow, they're so good. They're and there's so, so much. Good. I am not as big of a fan as Unforgiven as Scott is, but mm. clearly his performance mm. was wonderful. I think, I think I'm glad I never will watch another Clint Eastwood-directed movie, but okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, but The Conversation, that was an enormously lovely, really powerful movie. Uh-huh. He had so many huge, huge wins. Yep. Um, it's amazing to think about him... 12 years into his career when he makes this movie. Gene uh, Hackman. Yeah, Gene Hackman. Okay. Like he's got some okay. TV behind him, he's got a few movies behind him, but he's not a newbie actor here. No. And you can totally tell. Um, but then there's also uh, Roy Scheider, who in the world, uh, the borderline world of, of sci fi and speculative fiction, uh, you know, okay, you're, is Roy Scheider, of course, there was, I think, Outland is the one, if I, I don't remember correctly on that one, but he did Jaws. Which is a seminal movie in American cinema and world cinema. He did Blue Thunder. So mm-hmm. there's two movies right there where you have to ask yourself, uh, is mm-hmm. Blue Thunder a cop procedural or is it a sci-fi movie? Because you got that tricked out helicopter. And is Jaws, a? is that a character drama or is it a monster movie? It's a giant monster movie, you know? Yeah. And so earlier we were sort of talking about this decision to make this sort of stark uh, surface level look of the French Connection be uh, I don't I don't want to go so far be so precious as to say it's another oh, character yeah, or anything excellent. but the set design and the scouting and all that kind of adds all of that to mm-hmm. this uh, rough and tumble um, uh, do it like lots of these movies like Jaws was at the time like mm-hmm. this is it a horror movie or is it is this a police procedural or kind of a gritty look at the ugly underbelly of New York City kind of thing. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, 
It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. And then we have a Mr. Fernando Ray, who played... The character's name is, is Frog One. So that's... I don't think that's too insulting. There's a lot of insulting shit in this oh, movie. Yeah. Let's, let's just... We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but Fernando Ray was a Spanish movie actor, apparently very celebrated in Spain, primarily known for his role in this movie. And then one of my favorite uh, actors, characters in this, the, as far... The backstories of the people in this are amazing. Mr. Bill Hickman... Uh, this actor is better known for his prowess as a stunt driver. His work in Bullet, 1968, is mm-hmm. legendary where he drove the black Dodge Charger 440 Magnum that was pursued by Steve McQueen in his Ford Mustang 390 GT. Ooh, what a great movie. It's a, we, I'd love to do that one someday. And then we get into these gentlemen. There, Oops, sorry, I got these backwards. There's Eddie Egan. This is, see if I have this right. I can do it if you want. Uh, so this we've talked quite a lot about oh, about this, him. So just, this is Sonny Grosso, and this is Eddie Egan. Those are the two guys, right? So Sonny Grosso, go back a second. He plays okay. Saul, right? Yep. And this this photo of him is probably a dozen years after he was in the French Connection. In the French Connection, he's this Italian stallion, Saturday Night uh, Fever kind of like good looking uh, Bronx or Queens boy, I'm not exactly sure where the 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 show the the uh, uh, store is set. Um, but he's this Italian kid from New York, and he totally looks at and he's gorgeous, and he's still gorgeous here. But it's a dozen years later. He's got the the different hairdo. I'm just, and I'm just else. not good at figuring out if guys are good looking or not. That's a, that's a gorgeous gentleman. All right, cool. I mean, he was cuter when he was 12 years younger. But he was that's true. He of was all of us. very uh, in, intimidating in the yeah, French he's connection. Quite intense on purpose. Like if that guy's think, busting yeah. you, you're like, okay, I'm just going to tell the cops whatever they want to know. Yeah, I don't exactly. want. I don't want. Exactly. I don't want to see. I don't want Exactly. And he went on to uh, become a television producer. So he did lots of made-for-TV movies. He's no longer with us. But he also did the Heat of the Night TV show. So if you are old enough to remember the Heat of the Night TV show, he was the producer of that one. Now, uh, this is, uh, I admit, I'm supposed to know many things. I did not know that this was based on a true story. Yeah. Well, and what's... <laughs> he explained it. I'd already seen it once and I still didn't know. 
And my favorite part about that is we'd you'd watched it, we watched it again, and when you call it up on was it Netflix or Amazon Prime, wherever it was, yeah. uh, it literally says based on a true story, comma. Popeye Doyle, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And after we're, and, it, and so we're done watching it and it's back on that screen. And he says, holy shit, this was, oops, swear jar. Uh, holy shit, this is a, a true story. And I'm like, I, it says, yes. Kevin Capizzi in the chat room points out that uh, Mr. Grosso, it's his butt chin. That's mm. what throws me off. I can't, well, exactly. a cleft chin, a butt chin, either way, I can't tell. So I'm just going to read you guys a little bit about the actual French connection. Feel free to go look this up on uh, my own personal site that I make every day called Wikipedia. I hope you like it. It is the French connection was a scheme through which heroin was smuggled from Turkey to France and then to the United States and Canada. It started in the 1930s, reached its peak in the 60s, was dismantled in the 70s. It was responsible for the vast majority of heroin used in the U.S. at the time. Uh, It goes back to the 30s. Heavy, heavy stuff here. It started in Marseille, France, 1937. It was run by the Corsican gang and gang leader Paul Carbone. This is where it gets really good. The Corsican gang was protected by the Central Intelligence Agency, you know, from America. Uh, And the SDECE after World War II in exchange for working to prevent French communists from bringing the old port of Marseille under their control. So we were were protecting – and this is not the only one. This happened quite a lot. We were protecting a criminal organization Mm -hmm. that was actively smuggling drugs – in America, protecting, but they had the most control of Marseille. Yeah, it's, that's crazy. To happening me. right this minute, yeah. I have no doubt. It's pro- probably so. There's some territory have you we met want to Oliver control. North. <laughs> like we've done this a thousand times. We do this every day. In the '60s, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, annual report estimated that 2,600 to 5,000 pounds of heroin were coming into the United States annually from France. The French traffickers continued to exploit the demand for their illegal product and by, by 1969 were supplying the United States with 80% of its heroin. Now, at this point, I don't know if the CIA is still covering for them, but, uh, you know, as far as Kickstarters go, I'm, I'm going to kickstart my drug company. Really? I want my primary backer to be the CIA. I think that's I, a great idea. I feel like if you do that... Considering the CIA's mission is secret, I feel like kickstarting it is potentially the wrong option. If you guys will, if you guys will be backers for my heroin smuggling Kickstarter, just type in heroin yay in the chat room, and then we'll know uh, everything is good. There's a little bit more, a tiny bit more. 1970s, the dismantling. That sounds like a good, num- good name for a horror movie, right there. The dismantling. Yeah. Well, or. Police I think Kevin even. Capizzi could do special effects for the dismantling, and it would be quite, quite, quite scary. In February 1972, French traffickers offered a United States Army sergeant $96,000, equivalent to $586,000 in 2019, to smuggle 240 pounds of heroin into the U.S. He, being a good sort and not working for the FBI <laughs> or the CIA, he informed his superior... Who turned in, who who in turn notified BNDD? I don't know what that is. We'll get to that. Uh, as a result of this investigation, five men in New York and two in Paris were arrested with 264 pounds of heroin, which had a street value of fifty million dollars. But at this time in the United in in this time in the world, this particular um, pathway for drugs into the United States, the United States had all the money, right? Then the United States had all the infrastructure. Europe had all the heroin, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yep. And it's no different than here we are 30 years later and it's South America that has all the heroin. <laughs> 
Mike Mike says uh, he'll back my Kickstarter for heroin smuggling, but it depends on the stretch goals. I could not agree more. I just got to read you some of the Lucchese crime family members who are involved in this. Of course, you had Giovanni Big John Ormento. He was a capo. Uh, capo. Capo or capo? Capo's capo is a thing that goes on a guitar. Yes. <laughs> And he wishes, I bet he wished when he got busted that he was a capo, not a capo. Salvatore Laproto, Angelo M. Loicano, and then, my favorite, Angelo Little Angie Terniasso and Pascal Fancy Fuca. Oh, my God. These are great names. These are great, great, great names. All right, so there's that. Let me get, give me one to get back on the script, guys. Yeah, so it's interesting because this is a movie I have uh, had conversations with. Two friends who are watching it for Story Smack now, completely mm-hmm. separate, completely okay. uh, unknown to each other, who said, um, okay, I tried. I tried <laughs> to watch this, but I, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't get through. I couldn't. And, and like, felt bad about it. Like, you know, it's a movie. Like, who cares if you don't like it? Who cares? Right. You know? Right. And yet, you know, it's so, it's so storied and Academy Award winning and everything else. And that should be every Academy Award winner should be watchable, right? But that isn't true because the Academy Awards have been around forever and the people we are in 2020, wildly different than who we were in 1972. A lot of this, I would say this movie could have been made no problem up to like 2000, probably 10, 11, 12. Yeah, with a few adjustments. With a few adjustments. But now, you know, the... the, um, And it's not overt racism, but there's plenty of racism in there. But the thing that's, uh, for example, tripping us up on my book, Nocturnal, that they're trying to adapt Mm -hmm. is now the conversation about police brutality has changed so much. So to get this movie made today, to fund this movie today, it would, there's no question, there would have to be a huge script rewrite. They would have to do a lot of different things to Popeye Doyle because you can't. We're running as nocturnals. It's not like Brian Clauser and Pookie Chang are out slapping guys around, but they are, you know, they're wild cards. And and some of that stuff that's in the book is getting people twingy in Hollywood and the producers, too. Like, we can't, we have to adjust this and dial this down a little bit because of where we are as a culture. Well, and part of it is also, it's not just the culture. It's, you know, if if we get a greenlit today, it maybe gets made in 2023, 2024, Uh where this conversation seems likely to continue for a while, too. So it's not exactly who we are today, but with movie making, you got to figure out who you're going to be in the next five years. That's a tough guess, yeah. That said... There are, and we won't talk a ton about it, but there, like Scott said, there are, there's a lot of casual racism, which was probably true at the time. Um, there's this interesting scene at a bar that is uh, a, a predominantly black patroned bar mm-hmm. uh, where they, where uh, Roy Schneider and uh, Gene Hackman come in and they rough everybody. Roust they, them up. They roust them. Yeah. Roust they them don't, up. they don't hurt anybody. They arrest a handful of people or they have the, like the, the street cops arrest a handful of people, but they're just shitty. It's just like they're just shitty. They're performing and being that role, that bad cop. Role. This is where, to me, it gets interesting because what they do in this movie is no different than hundreds of other cop movies. It's just when you walk into an all-black bar, and then they are just demeaning to these guys who a lot of them are just patrons at oh, a yeah. bar. At this at this point in time, you're like, oh, I don't know about this. Well, and not only that, realistically speaking, they're also the cops' behavior in that bar. No matter who the patrons were, they rough people up, they mm-hmm. hit people, they ruffle through their clothes, they take people's <laughs> wallets and cigarettes and whatever and dump them all into a beer yeah, glass yeah. and then pour beer in it. And they do all this stuff that wouldn't be acceptable today, and rightfully so, um, that just 
like literally nope not the bartender there's no one who says all right all right Popeye like well, nobody does that that's that's old school cops is they what did they say about uh, was it New York I think it was San Francisco or New York back in the day um, when gangs were much more prevalent and much more dominant uh, w- the cop forces had a, had a saying that they were the biggest gang in the city. So yeah. if you were, because yeah. they, they were mean and nasty and brutal, and some things had to be done at those times to control that level of violence. But we supposedly evolved as a society. But so this well, that's it's, sort of what I'm saying is that we that well, exactly. It's anti- yeah, it's anachronistic. anachronistic. Uh, Trace, Tracy, you were talking about the same thing. Um, I, I don't know how a lot of movies would get made today. I do think lots of the movies that we love from before could get made today, but I just think that they would be somewhat, um, you know, sh- sh- sort of somewhat differently framed. I think Tracy uh, in the chat room brings up a good point. You go back to Eddie Murphy in 48 hours, you know, is that redneck hate, et cetera. He comes in and he, they rouse the bar and do all kinds of illegal shit, um, which is if you remade the French connection, Exactly the same, except that's a bar full of Italian guys. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm not sure. I'm not you sure that. So? The, I, I'm not sure anymore that that's true. I'm not sure that because um, now the police brutality angle well, because, is so much more sensitive. And progressively speaking, and I don't mean progressive with a capital P. I mean if you look at the progression of um, any kind of a state of any ilk, mm-hmm. you start with the people in power having all the power, and then you move to there is an equitable distribution of. Uh, resources among most of the society, right? And then you get to everybody's living high and everybody's living well, and then you start to work on the minorities. You give women the right to own property or vote or shit like that and Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so that happens through every society. We can look at it a thousand times. So I do think that we would have a problem with this because, but I I also think it would get made. Yeah. So it would have to be a little bit different, but hopefully we're learning as a society to be either a little more sensitive to have these difficult conversations, uh, uh, which I don't even think they thought about it being a difficult uh, conversation back in 1972. It's just the way of it was. But and being, there's, a, there's some value in being an edgy, controversial movie. That helps with marketing. So they may have had some conversation. But yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they thought they were being edgy so? at all. Oh, it's fascinating. At all. They thought they'd be in the real, real. Yeah. All right, now we're going to talk about the problems with the French Connection. And I, I have a few. I've also learned some valuable storytelling lessons from the French Connection. We're going to talk a little bit about the weird, going back to what A said about this being superficial, the weird plot holes and the off-screen stuff that we don't get to see. Uh, The running thread in this movie is Popeye Doyle is desperate for this case to happen. It's his case. He and his partner, Cloudy, made it happen out of nowhere. They don't want it taken away and given to the feds. And Popeye's had some wrong calls in the past, so he is obsessed. He's begging to be left on this case. He gets taken off the case in a very dramatic scene. And then uh, a bystander gets murdered when a frog, too, perhaps it is, mm-hmm. takes a shot at him. And uh, there's no no coverage of the civilian injuries or civilian deaths. There's no no reaction or introspective thought at all about a gun gunfight going out in a open open square. And there's no connection between this this attack which there is at least a significant injury if not a fatality of a civilian and then all of a sudden back on the case he's just back on the case oh, yeah. there's no discussion there's no like get back on popeye he's just boom he's right back in the next scene and this is what we were talking about before and if you think about it at, at, at the in the final scene there's probably 50 cops maybe less maybe 30 cops mm-hmm. there is never an interdepartmental like phone call, decision, yeah. nothing. It's just literally as if Popeye is on or off the case 
and the feds are on or off the case because the feds come in and that's a, 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 it's a, a joint. It's a it's a um, point of contention for Popeye Doyle. Right, right. Um, doesn't like them feds. Yeah. But there's never any kind of a discussion about why and who has jurisdiction or it's literally just, hey, that guy, that guy in that car. We have to chase that guy in that car. Here's 50 people. (laughs) And then here's one that you could not do this today. They have the great chase, the classic chase scene with Popeye in a uh, commandeered vehicle chasing the L. And then he shoots a guy in the back on the L platform and... No coverage of that. No comment about that. No nothing. Cop shoots a guy, uh, a perp in the back, and he's uh, and then boom, right back. They they don't even mention it. There's nothing. Also, Popeye Doyle is not visibly a police officer when he does that. He's an undercover detective. He's mm-hmm. not wearing his badge like he is at the end. A visible badge at the end. He's just chasing this dude, and he shoots him in broad daylight on a very public street and. No one reacts. And it's not only does no one react, you guys, this is literally the friggin' movie poster. Yeah. <laughs> There's Popeye Doyle, the star of the movie, shooting a guy in the back in public on a train station stairs, and they don't cover. There's no mention of yeah, this. Nobody even yells. What? Like, you don't even get, oh, Doyle, if you shoot yet one more guy in the back, I'm going to take away your badge and your gun. I'm going to bust you down to traffic. We don't even get that. Okay, but the biggest one. Yeah, the biggest one of all. The uh, biggest, biggest the, problem of all. You guys. I wish I'd been high when I watched this. The car. The car. We watched them commandeer the perp's car. Oh, did we ever tell the, the why the car is important? Uh, we should, well, we spoiler hopefully you've seen this movie. We're not spoiling it all, but you, it's, worth, it's worth going back and watching. So the French Connection utilizes the, a, a very expensive Lincoln Town car, which is brought over. What's that? It's a Buick. Uh, I think it's a Lincoln. Is it Buick? It's a a Lincoln Buick. And (laughs) the Lincoln Buick is brought over from France because it's loaded with all damn drugs. And uh, Popeye knows it. I know that car's dirty. I know it. Irv, the car's dirty. And they finally get the car with a weird random subplot Mm -hmm. of some uh, Hispanic gentlemen, we will call them. Uh, were trying to steal the car, and they thought that was a big drug bust. They bring the car in, and they tear the car apart. They're oh, yes. cutting carpet. They're bending metal. They're just they're tearing carpet. plastic. Yeah, they're not. It, there's no effort to be like, hold on, I got to get the screw just right so we can put this back. They shred the car. Mm-hmm. They're literally parts of. They, they pull just, out wires. They pull out wires. They're cutting they, through fabric. They shred carpet and 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 naga hide and the foam in the back seat. Yeah. Oh, and you watch yeah. them do it. Yep. Yep. They like take a screwdriver and like uh, run along the uh, floorboards and and the windshield and stuff, which you would need to reinstall. Just it's 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 insane. And of course, people in the people in the chat room are mentioning how did it win so many awards with all these plot holes? And I don't have an answer for you. I mean, except that except that. This is one of my storytelling lessons. I, as a creator, often get bogged down. Got to go back and button up all these details. You got this guy did this. People would say this, so I have to at least dress this, even if it's just with a line. And in this movie, and it could be because of editing, it might not even be like they may have had some of this stuff covered. They just had to cut it out for the edit, and they put the car somehow put the car back together so well that the people, not only the people, the guy who owns the car, who's an actor, we can forgive that. Maybe he doesn't know his car. Maybe he gets a new one every I mean, week. But-, but the crooks. The crooks, the mafia guys, little Joey, mm-hmm. you know, and Tommy, Tommy Pansy. Like they're going to they're not going to look at this car and find anything wrong with it. 
Well, I, the biggest thing is if it was your car and literally the carpet was shredded, you would know that. And especially if you had jimmied that car to be full of drugs, you'd flip and look at it. Uh, Kim Hansen in That's the chat room asks, uh, why was it not parked on the street anyway? Because it was hiding in plain sight. That was the, that was the idea that the, this was just, you know, don't go to a dark alley somewhere. Just do that. Once the transaction is done, you'll do it there. And what happens is this other street gang wants to boost all the tires. So it's totally a, a crime of, of I, um, that's coincidence good, that, the, point, that, the, that the guys with, who want to steal the tires show up and that gets the police involved because it's a bunch of guys trying yeah. to boost a car. But that's that's really like this won an Academy Award for best adapted screenplay. Let's let go of the actors. Let's let go of the director. The screenplay itself. I mean, this car has five hundred thousand dollars worth of smack in it, which by today's numbers is three point two million dollars of smack in the car. And Kim is right. They leave the car sitting on a street. And I assumed both the first and second time I watched. It's been a while since the first time I assumed the, the point of this was. They leave it on the street for a couple days so that the guys who are taking delivery of the drugs get to scope out and watch, make sure nobody's right. looking at it. And then they just grab, they take the car and they drive away. But it is, that's not it at all. Well, they no. actually wind up driving the car to a garage somewhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's after it gets boosted. So if it hadn't, if they hadn't tried to oh. steal the tires, then yes, what you're saying is true. The people who are buying could be like, yep, nobody's here. Nobody's, there's no cops. Everything's fine. It's mm-hmm. all good. I'm going to take this car. But then the, the tires start to get boosted and then the police get involved they, and, and the police impound switch, the car. Then the criminals switch their plan. Yes, because they know at that point, they know that the New York City Narcotics Department is on their tail. We yeah, know Frog One knows that all along. Yeah, right. They so they you're know, right. like, well, we can't do what we were going to do because <laughs> obviously the police are watching that car. But, you know, the other thing that I'll say, and this is I, I don't know how many of you will agree with me, but a big part of why this won so many Academy Awards back then is we didn't have this kind of access. So all we had was okay. going to the movies on a Saturday night and watching that show and talking about it with your friends and family afterwards. We didn't get to dissect it on YouTube. We didn't get to discuss it on the internet. It had to be people who went and saw that movie and probably only saw it once because you were paying for it. And then they come back and they talk about it, right? So now we are so flooded with information, we become experts that we weren't 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago. If you're worried about this Academy Award, watch any movie from the 40s that won an Academy Award. Good point. Also, I would like to point out, uh, she's wrong about one person. I have been an expert for 712 years in all things, all things. You know, for the first 500 years of my life, I had a lush, luxurious head of hair. The last 200, it's been a little rough for me. I mean, you do have a great beard, though. I do. It migrated down so that you didn't get any wrinkles. Uh, I do. Uh, If you ever ever want to see me smile, just ask uh, my wife to throw me a compliment. I can't help it. It's very, very nice. But you know, this is a thing. I've been talking with a handful of girlfriends. We get together every Monday afternoon on Zoom for an hour, and we've been sort of talking about, like, in the pandemic, some things have been weird. I keep listening to books I already know and Mm -hmm. enjoying movies. Like, we just finished watching The Boys last night, and he was like, no, 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 we'll wait for the finale because I haven't seen season one. And I was like, nope, don't care. (laughs) Don't care. Because now we're so overwhelmed with information and you know i haven't left this house much in seven months so now i'm i'm happy to go with what i know i'll say and i think that's what's happening here this vibe of of us having all the information that we want at our fingertips we could watch the movie never think about it again or we could pick apart every single scene and every single prop and every single actor well 
you know, I guess we have to look. We have to go back and look at what was it? What was it up against again? It um, was up a Clockwork Orange, clockwork which is orange, just crazy. Um, you're not, you're not gonna, on the roof. You're not going to compare a. You're not going to say, well, the French Connection's plot was ridiculous, but a Clockwork Orange's plot that was nails. No, that that, that and a Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if you can have plots for a musical. It's crazy. No, there's a huge plot for that musical. But I, I don't know that you're when it's a musical. I don't know that you're going to worry that the plot is all granular no, and lines That's up. It. And know? then and then the last picture show uh, was absolutely character. They were wildly different, absolutely character driven, and led by the luminous and young. Um, who was in Moonlighting? Bruce Willis and Sybil Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd. Oh yes, one of her, and, and it was gorgeous and oh, and a much slower slower thing. So it's an interesting thing to see that the last picture show in this teeny tiny town in Texas set up against the French Connection in this giant giant city and Fiddler on the Roof in this weird foreign t- you know weird foreign set like all of that I think are things that. Uh, uh, we get more homogenous the more we have more information. You know what I just figured out? The boys had a fiddler on the roof reference at the very end of the season closer. No, it did not. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> All right, lady. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are done with this. We have uh, laid our gel of intelligence and our analytical smearing all about a movie that won five Academy Awards and has my favorite actor. And now our spread is complete. Next Story Smack, we will be watching, wait for it, wait for it, Caddyshack. One of the four movies, the final four of the greatest sports movies of all time. If you have not seen Caddyshack, Go watch Caddyshack. I cannot wait for this one. Talk about a movie with a perfect plot that has no, no plot errors, no lack of continuity. It is a flawless masterpiece of storytelling. I mean, they do, they do chase a stuffed animal around for two hours. But it's internally consistent. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys so much for joining us you have been watching episode 57 of story snack where we discussed the fraught but fun french connection mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. you can always find scott and i online you guys know this you're always here with us but just in case people are listening on the podcast scott is at scott sigler uh on twitter and instagram and his facebook page is facebook.com slash scott sigler i am at a real girl on twitter and at a dot real dot girl on instagram you can find us online at facebook.com slash story smack you can watch us stream story smack live at facebook.com slash scott sigler twitch.tv slash scott sigler and youtube.com slash scott sigler We would love to have you join the live streams every other Saturday or every Tuesday and Thursday. In addition to Story Smack, the Tuesday and Thursday cast is called Sigler in Place. And uh, you can see it where you're seeing this. Yep. Scott also releases unabridged episodes of a serialized novel every week. You can get episodes for free every Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe for links. We really hope you subscribe so you can hear Scott's books, see more Story Smack, and watch us twice a week live on Sigler in Place. And we hope that too, that you enjoy more Story Smack goodness, goodness with us in the future. That's all we've got. So until next time, we will talk I to you. car is dirty, I tell you. Irv, what the hell is that? Is that till next time? Sure. (laughs) And we will talk to you all real Real soon. soon. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.